Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 200, recorded for February 15th, 2023. Now you can make bad cloud decisions like running EKS on snow. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. How's it going? It's going well. Happy that we've made 200 finally. The last 10 have been like an eternity for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I felt about it. I felt like I was, uh, you know, it was flying by at one moment because I, I had plans for 200 and then I said, nah, I'm not going to do that because I've run out of time. And so we'll save it for 250. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've really enjoyed the, the new format and the uh, more conversation we've been having. But I feel yeah. like we got to kind of like 190, 191. That seems like such a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the fact that January uh, went by the fastest month ever in my lifetime, also the slowest month ever in my lifetime, which is sort of a weird <laughs> oxymoron, or I don't know, uh, conflicting statement, but it, it felt slow and fast all at the same time. So and the fact that it's already February 15th also blows my mind. So I don't, I, every day feels like dog days, and then it's like, we're already mid-February. So I think time is a construct I no longer understand. Yeah, clearly pandemic broke time for me because uh-huh. that's that's how I see it. But yeah, no, we've we've gotten really good feedback on the new format, and uh, I think today we actually wrap up our cloud center of excellence uh, topic. So then we'll we'll pivot into one of the other ones uh, starting next week. Which, uh, if you guys have a topic idea that you want us to talk about, uh, we would love to get your suggestions. Uh, we can you know we'll see if we can turn it into a series, or you know you could even do a question show occasionally as well if you want to submit questions to us either through. Twitter or Mastodon or our Slack channel or email pod at thecloudpod.net. It'll come to me. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of options on how we're going to send that. But yeah, CCOE is going to wrap up today. And then I think we're moving into a new topic, which we have not decided for next week. Uh, that was the business we forgot to do before the show. <laughs> we can cover <laughs> that later. Uh, so I don't know what that's going to be next week, but it'll be fun. Peter is out tonight, uh, unfortunately. So he missed 200 episode. Uh, but uh, you know, you, listeners are kind of used to Peter not being here sometimes. So it's okay. <laughs> Let's get into the news. Uh, AWS Graviton 3-based general purpose M7G and R7G instances are now available to you, uh, meaning that the Graviton 3 has now basically gone to all of the major instance types that people care about. The C's have them, the M's have them, now the R's have them. Uh, you know, these are the most popular instances, especially R's for databases and M's for Java. Uh, so this is a really nice addition, and they are pretty beefy boxes for you. So the M7G medium uh, is your smallest size option, which is a one vCPU, four gigabytes of memory, with up to 1250, uh, 12.5 gigabytes per second of network and up to 10 gigabytes per second of EBS volume throughput, uh, which is a pretty healthy medium-sized box, actually. Uh, all the way up to the M7G 16X large or metal configuration with 16 vCPU, 256 gigs of memory, uh, 30 gigabits per second of networking access and 20 gigabits per second of EBS access. So those are pretty nice. Uh, they cost you anywhere from $29.78 to $1,900.06 per month in a U.S. region. Other regions, your pricing will vary. R7G uh, also comes to you in the, the medium to 16x large, but the shapes are slightly different. The medium gives you uh, one vCPU and eight gigs of RAM and the same uh, up to 12.5 gigabits per second of network and 10 gigabits per second of EPS. And the 16X large gets you 64 Graviton 3 vCPUs with 512 gigs of memory and 30 gigabits of throughput and 20 gigs of throughput to the EBS. So uh, all for the lower price of $39.12 for that medium and $2,501 for the 16X large instance. So 
uh, actually, that's a pretty good price for the price performance you're getting here. That's a that's a pretty nice box. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think it's you know, there's if you don't have you know something that's going to leverage a bunch of you know CPU cores, this will run most everything. I think this is as beefy as you know most of my home servers. And you know, I run way too much stuff on those things. Um, yeah, so this is fantastic. It's, it's something like a a nickel an hour or something like that. Like trying to trying to reverse the math, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I was trying to be nice because normally I try to get the pennies per hour, and then mm-hmm. I, just, I just stumble through it in the tens of pennies. So I just <laughs> I just summarize it to a month, and now you're trying to go backwards. Are you kidding <laughs> me right now? Well, I only understand <laughs> one metric. How do I compare? Yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to compare like the old C6G to the to C7G. They're not that different in price, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, the 25 to 30% performance improvement is, uh, it works out to an improvement in price if mm-hmm. if you scale the workloads properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the C7G medium is uh, 0.0363 an hour versus the C7G 16X large is $2.32 an hour. And I'm not going to look at the R's, but the C6Gs were basically three, 0.34 cents per hour. And the largest one of these is a 16X large C6G, and that one is $2.17 uh, per hour. So, yeah, a little bit more expensive, but again, better price per performance, uh, up to 30%, typically between the Graviton 2 and the Graviton 3 uh, per the metrics. Mm. Very nice. Yeah, I might uh, might go change some instance types uh, when I have some free time this weekend because uh, I do typically use the M series uh, on spot market, and I'm sure if that's the list prices in the spot market, it's in good shape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can pick up some pick up some boxes. <laughs> uh, well, this is um, a weird announcement. I don't fully understand the use case, but you can apparently now run EKS anywhere on Snowball devices. Uh, this automate this new capability automates the creation and management of Kubernetes clusters on AWS Snowball Edge compute optimized devices with AWS optimization and support for containerized workloads. You need to run at edge locations without reliable internet connections or self-managed hardware. Uh, you can get them as a pay-as-you-go pricing, or you can commit to a Snowball Edge at your location for one year or three years uh, to keep this running. I guess in your warehouse or something else. And, Seems like an interesting model. Um, I don't fully understand the use case on, but uh, yeah, so apparently you can do this now. It kind of seems like a poor man's outposts, really. <laughs> yeah, at, that, at this point. Yeah, you don't want to spend three hundred thousand dollars a month. We'll we'll sell you. We'll send you a couple uh, EKS anywhere boxes on Snow Edge. You just run that instead. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like. I'm wondering if the market has shifted to where, you know, the, the use case originally of, of snow and snowballs was, you know, to get data into AWS out of your data center. And I wonder if it's, it's shifted a bit, you know, cause the, the ability to run compute sort of tasks, which makes sense, right? You're going to do, you know, transformation or, or something along those lines, but to need to do that offline is interesting. And it makes me wonder exactly like, is, is this, has this become different than, than what we're expecting, where there's, you know, there's creating ways to get data into AWS or these poor man outposts used for temporary events or. I mean, I see temporary events maybe making sense. I could maybe see use cases where you're collecting a lot of data 
locally that for, you know, you don't necessarily want to send it over the wire for sensitivity reasons to Google Cloud, but you need to archive it there. And so you you ship one every month to yourself and you swap them out. And maybe you do some lightweight processing with EKS to normalize data, maybe. Um, yeah, I, the, those maybe make sense or... Yeah, you know, it's a ship that's transiting the Atlantic that's collecting metrics and telemetry, and then at the end of the you know the ship gets to where it goes, you you pack it up and ship it back to AWS, and then process all the data. I, don't, I guess those are potential use cases where there's just massive amounts of data that's just not practical to send uh, to AWS directly over the internet. You know, because you're using satellite connectivity or using something else expensive. Maybe that all makes sense. Uh, again, this isn't my use case, so if this is your use case, we would love to hear from you <laughs> and hear what you use it for, because uh, that'd be great to know. I kind of wonder if there's one of these riding around in the back of all the uh, Amazon Zooks um, driverless cars. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Are they back of all the Amazon Prime delivery vans too? Yep. Yeah. I somehow missed the announcement, but you can run all kinds of compute on these things. Like you could run Lambda. Like yeah, Lambda and, and VM instances have been a thing for a while. Um, even the fact that when Jonathan and I got the little, the little snowball, which I don't remember what it's called, a snow cone, uh, when we got it to play with it, it came prepackaged with an with a Amazon Linux two image I had loaded on it, so it could run it on on the little box. So that was those are definitely uses that you could you know similar thing. But again, it was EKS is just a lot of overhead for that use case. For sure. Where you know if I can run a couple of VM instances that run my use case, why do I need EKS? Yeah. And if you think about yeah the you know the idea of this being offline, I guess you could maybe preload it with like the images and. Configurations. Yeah, that's actually part of the setup process. Yeah. So when you when you go to the website and you uh, basically sign up for it, it's one of the things you have to do is actually tell it which which images you want loaded onto the device um, for the AMIs, so you can get that all built out in advance. Hmm. Actually, read an interesting um, article recently. It was about uh, Chick Fil A and their use of Kubernetes, and they ship out um, was it Intel uh, NUC devices to to all their stores, and they remotely manage Kubernetes clusters in, in all their stores. I mean. I guess if uh, if renting one of these for three years at a time is is more affordable, um, you know, get the hardware swapped out. If there's an issue. Maybe maybe it does make sense. That this is a you know, an, it's all of a sudden become an edge compute device rather than a storage device. Yeah. Again, I'd, I'd love to hear real world use cases because yeah. I'm sure they exist. I just again, it's not an area that I've had to do. But yeah, storefront. But again, stores you typically are connected to by a DSL or. Some relatively reasonable Wi-Fi network or cell phone network these days, so connectivity is not really a problem at a store. Um, but yeah, in the case of EKS running on the on a Intel NUC, you know, for high availability, it's cheaper than running a VMware cluster on store, which is a very typical prior pattern. So th- that makes some sense to me from a store perspective. I liked I liked your ship ship theory. That that's a good one. I can see you know the the rugged packaging. Mm-hmm. Of you know of these things being a factor there, and it's kind of a you know you you don't want to pay for a satellite uplink for that entire thing, you know if you yeah. don't have to. So yeah, that's the most obvious use case to me is you know something that's moving that require you know has a massive amount of telemetry like a ship, you know all the engine metrics, all of the satellite imaging, you know all the navigation data points, the tidal data, all that factors into a bunch of things that they may want to collect and use for other purposes. That just makes sense. Spy balloons, I'm telling you. Spy balloons. Spy balloons, that's mm-hmm. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, FBI, we are not interested in buying a snowball device for snow, for balloons at this moment. <laughs> uh, well, another uh, exciting development, if you're into ruggedized devices, is a new ruggedized container 
uh, called the AWS Modular Data Center, or AWS MDC for short. Unfortunately, if you're not part of the U.S. Department of Defense Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Program, you can't get this. But if you are, you get this new fancy containers. Uh, you know, basically, they're saying the cloud would be perfect for many military applications, but may be difficult to reach in the field for the same satellite reasons the Snowball uh, devices are problematic. Uh, so AWS has announced the AWS Modular Data Center MDC. This new service provides DoD customers the ability to deploy compute and storage capabilities to support large-scale workloads wherever they need it, including in disconnected, disrupted, intermittent, and limited environments. Each AWS MDC comes pre-configured with a high-availability data center infrastructure, including internal networking, cooling and power distribution equipment, and deploy compute and storage capabilities. AWS MDC supports both AWS Outposts or AWS Snowball Edge devices and can be scaled through the deployment of additional modular data center units to support customer requirements. AWS MDC is available to U.S. government customers who are eligible for the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Contract. The service is currently supported from the GovCloud U.S. West and U.S. East regions. Now we have our answer about why they put AKS anywhere on Snowball mm. 1. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're gonna get you're gonna get AWS modular data center loaded with snowballs versus yep. the uh-huh. versus getting the uh, you know the outpost. I go with the outpost personally. Well, it depends if you have you know the uplink connectivity. I think outposts require connectivity to the the data centers for managing the services. So mm-hmm. I think that this is sort of like maybe the cheater way of doing that. Although I don't know if if connectivity comes as part of the MDC. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, I didn't get to that many specifics of the details of the announcement to see if it had telco requirements. But uh, you know, again, if it's in a ruggedized container, you can ship anywhere in the world. It makes sense that that would be disconnected, yeah, isolated. So, uh, they did not announce any pricing on this. I was sort of sad about it. Uh, yeah, because uh, I was curious how much this costs. All the monies. I'm I sure. could contact. A, I could contact an AWS sales rep to find out. But um, since I don't have the JWCC credential, I don't think they'll tell me. <laughs> but uh, maybe I can get it. Maybe I can get a Freedom of Information Act on it someday. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. But uh, it's interesting that this is a uh, part of the joint warfighting cloud capability, which is the new version of Jedi, basically. Um, you know, but it's a multi-cloud Jedi. Uh, it's sort of interesting because this has clearly been in development for a while. This didn't just appear when they they announced that contract a few months back. Uh, so this has been probably in the work for quite a while. No, the concept's been around for quite a while as well, right? With their mm-hmm. the, you know their partnership with Verizon for five G, you know, doing sort of compute at the edge of that network and. You know, even back in the early days of computer science, you know, making a whole bunch of really dense compute modular, and so it could be moved around easily. It was it's definitely a thing. So it's cool. Yeah, I mean, right? The the, the idea in general isn't isn't new. I remember seeing an AT and T data center in the box, like twenty years ago. Basically, the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, much rather use AWS Cloud than an AT and T colo. Yeah, for sure. 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 Let's move over to GCP. Uh, and GCP, do we have to? <laughs> I mean, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, go on. Uh, so apparently, uh, GCP has identified that some organizations find it hard to make predictions about the future, uh, especially when putting a toe into the cloud journey that they may not fully understand quite yet. Uh, and so, one of the things that you learn very quickly if you're using Google is. If you want any of the advanced capabilities uh, or access to different CUD things, et cetera, you need to have a committed use agreement of some source, uh, but no more. Uh, the new ways for customers to consume and pay for Google Cloud services is available to you, including the new Flex Agreement, which is for those companies that who don't have the future predictability to make a multi-year commitment. The Flex Agreement allows you to move your workload to the cloud with no upfront commitment, but you still get access to unique incentives such as monthly spend discounts, 
recommended use discounts, cloud credits, and access to professional services based on monthly spend and workloads migrated to Google Cloud. Uh, this is addition to the capabilities for the Innovator Plus annual subscription and the Google Cloud Scale Boost we talked about previously in the show. Uh, they also talked about the new flexible CUDs, which they announced at Google Cloud Next. Uh, but apparently to further differentiate, they will be launching new product pricing additions for several Google Cloud portfolio products that will include a new standard edition, enterprise, and enterprise plus edition. Uh, these will roll out to some services. They won't be for all. Uh, and they gave an example of an enterprise plus differentiation for the regulated industry like banking and public sector, which would include the ability to have provide HA, multi-region support, regional failover, and disaster recovery advanced security, and a broad range of regulatory compliance support, which kind of freaks me out a little bit because <laughs> that just seems like complexity, but uh, we'll talk about that more in a second. And the last part of this article is increased granularity of your BigQuery auto-scaling so you can never pay more than what you need, allows you to provision more capacity in smaller increments, plus the new BigQuery auto-scaler is now in public preview to you as well. But uh, can we go back to that enterprise differentiation thing? So, I... I Enterprise Plus, if it gives you HA and multi-region support and regional failover and disaster recovery, and they're just going to handle all of that for me, that's fine. Okay, I'll pay for that. If you're telling me that I can't get those things unless I pay for Enterprise Plus, that's not going to be okay. (laughs) So the details of this are going to be where all the devils are. Yeah, no, I read this and had the same sort of reaction, which is like... Uh, I get, you know, dedicated capacity in, in alternate regions and, and, and paying for that, you know, that part makes sense to me, but yeah, the way that this was worded makes me really wonder, like, if you don't have these committed agreements in place, like, are you like, what, what exactly are you subject to? And so it is sort of an interesting, you know, like, oh, well, we're not going to offer you support for your if you need to fail over your service to an alternate region in case of like a, a failure or an HA, you know, like that's kind of strange. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, they have features on Google Cloud like geo replicated buckets, for example, mm-hmm. right? So it's a bucket, has a single API endpoint, you write to it, it writes data to two, two regions. And all of you people on Amazon just said, they do what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they do this as a native thing. Uh, Amazon just got a capability to do it, sort of. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, if that goes away, and now you have to do it all the old manual way with standard. That just is ridiculous. Yeah, it's weird because all those things are things that you build on top of the cloud using the tools they provide mm-hmm. today. So either they're, man- they're managing those things for you by providing tools for like disk replication and all that, all that other stuff. Or, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of make any sense, really. Mm-hmm. And the, the announcement itself is pretty vague on the details. And so yeah. like it's, it's sort of one of those things where you're like, Oh, I, I'm going to ask some questions about this, you know, to the communities and then account reps, and because it's, the, I agree, it's, it's in the details, and it's, it's less about you know what's in these flex agreements, but it's what's included in the promise of these flex agreements, and everything else that's not part of these flex agreements is what I want to know, right? You know, like I get committed use, you know, and those make sense to me, but I didn't realize that some of these things were part of a support package that only comes with some okay. level of commitment. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of, uh, you know, but the thing is, once you get into that multi-year commitment, you also lose access to the um, the spend discount, where basically they give you a discount for the longer your server's running. So there's, you know, there's pluses and minus. There's lots of, there's lots of gotchas in the cloud pricing model from GCP that are uh, things you only learn once you're on it. <laughs> and you get some nuance to it that, uh, 
you know, it's been eye-opening to me. Some of the things I've learned about Google Cloud as I've now supported it for over a year. Um, you know, and just its abilities or inabilities to do things that seem just kind of obvious to other cloud providers. But, um, you know, it, I'm sure I'll figure out what it's really strong at one day. I, I think we should change the show title now. It should be like, great. Ultra premium discs now available on Google Cloud. It's, it's like, really? <laughs> I, I, I really dislike the whole tiered service thing. Either mm-hmm. it's available or it's not available. You pay for it. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, you know, if you want to talk about saving money uh, between your ultra tier and premium tier, one of the great places to do that would be with the FinOps Foundation. Uh, and they have a new member because Microsoft has joined the FinOps Foundation as a premier member of the governing board, defining strategy and vision of the organization. Uh, there's a quote here from Vivek Dalvi, Corporate Vice President of Commerce Platform Experiences at Microsoft. I'm very enthusiastic about our partnership with our FinOps Foundation and our membership as part of the FinOps community. Optimizing cloud workloads is more important than ever for companies of all sizes and all industries. For Microsoft, this collaboration with the FinOps Foundation and our industry partners will empower Microsoft Cloud customers and partners to leverage the cost management best practices and industry standard operating procedures cultivated by the FinOps community. Uh, and apparently, Azure is hoping to work on defining specification and evolving best practices, like implementing best practices around FinOps open cost and usage specification or focus. Uh, they're looking to align their collective guidelines between the cloud adoption framework, Azure Wall Architecture Framework, and Microsoft Cost Management products. They want to improve those products with feedback from the foundation, uh, and they want to be able to provide advanced training content for Azure, uh, set FinOps capabilities, as well as certify relevant Microsoft FinOps teams on the FinOps Foundation practices uh, and engage with the 8,700 members and growing, uh, which I am one of those 8,700, so super interesting. Uh, J.R. Stormont, the executive director of the FinOps Foundation, had to say, Microsoft is a bellwether technology leader who's aligned to our vision of accelerating the growth of FinOps practitioners with its presence, leadership, and innovation. They welcome Microsoft as a premier member as its membership will be a huge asset to large FinOps community and development and maturation of be best practices across industries and the world. Does this mean like FinOps isn't cool anymore because Microsoft is part of it? <laughs> I mean... Azure already made the cloud uncool, so this is just the expansion <laughs> of that. I mean, a move like this makes a lot of sense. It's you know, it's a it's a way to get you know documentation standard standards and and stuff as part of the FinOps Foundation. Mentioned Azure and Azure Technologies. It's it's a way the, the building the training regime is a way to expose your cloud services to a new community. And it's you know overall, I think this is a, a good statement or a good move just because it'll it'll make the FinOps community even more stronger. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it really leaves, so Google Cloud's a premier member for quite a while as well as you know, Microsoft, but the AWS is not a member. Uh, I believe they have people who are members of the, of the FinOps community, I would have to bet it, but uh, they're definitely not a premier member like Microsoft and Google, so that's sort of interesting. I guess it's also a way to get there their products and their messages out to the FinOps audience. I mean, they've got a whole group of people who care about the, the cost of cloud and they're not hearing from Microsoft right now about, um, you know, any of their products or what any of their products can do for them. So it's, I'm sure it's a little, little self-serving, but, but ultimately good that, that they'll become part of the ecosystem and, and realize that, you know, people, people want to save money. People, yeah. people don't want to be uh, gouged. Especially in a recession, it's a great time to be saying, hey, we're supporting FinOps and we're supporting saving money through our membership of the foundation. So, uh, yeah, we're curious to see now if, if, you know, with Google and Microsoft being part of it, if Amazon sees 
necessary to join as well to have the same conversation. But uh, it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see over the next you know period of time as we continue down the path. They'd have to commit to restructuring their cost and usage reports, which will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they will. Yeah, total opinion piece. But you know they've they have they well, well architected system in place which deals with cost control and a lot of things i think they've already got a lot of this stuff covered as part of their their existing offerings i don't know that they would get any advantage from from being part of the finops foundation yeah other than thought leadership and showing the partnership with the community which would be mm-hmm. great um you know it's sort of interesting because you know amazon sort of gets that feeling all the time of like well we invented the space so why should we be involved in the community that formed around the space we created <laughs> Um, and I think that's sort of a, a flawed approach, which is why they get a lot of crap for how they treat open source. But, um, you know, again, this is, it wouldn't hurt them. You know, what is it? I don't know what a primary membership costs, uh, but about $100,000, $200,000 a year to sponsor something like this to say you're part of it and you have a voice on the board. Uh, seems like a reasonable thing, but just, just my two cents. <laughs> Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code, and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul. And they bring their own juice. All right. Well, uh, Oracle has a story that I caught my attention. <laughs> They're apparently redefining banking software as a service with the introduction of Oracle Banking Cloud Services. Uh, this new suite of componentized, composable cloud native applications are available on OCI globally. The suite builds on Oracle's decades long commitment to the financial service industry. The deep portfolio of award-winning financial services, applications, and the power of Oracle Cloud to deliver the most comprehensive offering of cloud-native SaaS solutions to banking. Uh, apparently, those cutting-edge features include nine core elements, uh, including highly scalable processing on Oracle Coherence Data Grid, which super expensive, perfect, microservices-based architecture that allows banks to compose their solutions by embedding or integrating with Oracle Banking Cloud Services seamlessly, only take you three years to get through change management, uh, industrialized architecture that forms the basis of Oracle services across all industries, offering their banking clients the reliability and performance of using one of the most battle-tested SaaS architectures available for mission-critical solutions. Hmm, really, Oracle? Okay. Uh, security that incorporates the three R's, rotate, repave, and repair. Third-party attestations and pen testing, making Oracle Banking Cloud Services the most trusted suite of banking SaaS and the availability of Oracle Banking Cloud Services and redundant footprints and regions, which is just a cloud thing, but sure. It's a banking thing too, I guess. Uh, and then resiliency and ensured via cross-regional deployments, cost-effective SaaS by virtue of using various flexible compute shapes of resources available in OCI and cost models, optimized usability through a templated Oracle integrated cloud, and integrated technology stack from application enablers to database to cloud ensure end-to-end automation and a homogeneous platform that delivers superior reliability and stability as well as trusted SLAs of the unbreakable Oracle cloud. 
So the suite builds in the article's decades-long commitment to the people with the most money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying okay. to figure out if this is like banking branded beanstalk. <laughs> right. Or like what exactly is a part of this service? Because it is kind of interesting. Like, yeah. Huh. Well, like, like when you talk about the banking cloud services, but you're redefining banking SaaS. So is this Oracle ERP for banking, but now it offered to you as OCI, but then you ought have all these OCI capabilities. Like the branding is a little muddled, in my opinion. Yeah. I kind of wonder if it's actually any kind of new product at all, or whether it's just, like you say, a uh, targeting a vertical. It's probably just targeting a vertical, yeah. but. Just funny, the redefining banking SaaS. <laughs> so there you go. All right, well, let's move on to our cloud journey series where we're doing our final installment on CCOE. It uh, feels like it was just yesterday we started this. Uh, <laughs> again, going back to our commentary at the beginning of the show about month of January, February flying by. Uh, and this week we're talking about automating the CCOE. So we talked about structuring it, we talked about securing it, we talked about infrastructure fundamentals around networking and VPC design. Um, and this week we're going to talk about all about how do you automate it and then cover metrics and how do you track uh, Cloud Center of Excellence metrics for adoption and various other success criteria you might think about. So uh, first up, you know, one of the areas that I really enjoyed automating in my CCOE journey with both of you <laughs> in a prior life uh, was a little thing we called uh, account management. And it was all about basically establishing uh, our guardrails and establishing them in those days and you know, as a partnership with a third party. Um, but now you can use things like OPA or you could use uh, Sentinel policies, et cetera, to really start codifying all those guardrails and saying, you know, look, our VPCs are going to be in this design and this spec. And if you go into the account and you change it, we're going to come back and change it back within 10 minutes. And that was one of the favorite things uh, I enjoyed doing at that prior business. But what about you guys? What other things are you interested in in the automation space? Well, I think it's a lot, it's really interesting to see how the cloud providers have reacted towards, you know, people automating things like uh, account and project uh, creation, just because, yeah, like we, when we started, there wasn't any option for, for that. We had to build it. Um, but now, you know, I think all the cloud pr providers have some sort of multi project or account vending strategy where it's cohesively driven from a centralized authority which is perfect for, you know, purposes of the CCOE. Um, you know, I think almost every CCOE starts with some wild, wild west account that was being paid by a credit card directly by the, you know, the engineering manager. Um, and so now, you know, it's, it's about how to make that a real thing. And so that's, it's important to sort of have that structure. And even if you're starting with a single, single account or project, you want to, Make sure that you're building something that can grow to multiples as, as you see fit. Yeah, but be careful of those account vending machines. As we learned, uh, you can create them really easily. Deleting them <laughs> can be somewhat <laughs> tricky. Um, so be cautious about that yeah. part. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a mistake learned the hard way. Closing counts is hard, especially on AWS. Other. Yeah. Others like Google and Azure, you get the ability to just delete the project and it'll, mm -hmm. it'll say, do you want to delete all the things in the project? And you're like, yes, I do. And just takes care of it. I think Amazon's fixed it now, but I'm, I haven't used it, so I don't know how easy it is. I think they, they offered the promise of an API. Yeah, I think I've seen enough complaining still on Twitter about you know phantom accounts still billing or you know still being able to access resources that 
you know, were allegedly turned off in an account you deleted. Uh, I, I don't think it's completely fixed. Yeah. <laughs> so. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's sort of interesting too because there's a lot of there's a lot of tools tooling you can buy on some of the stuff too. You know, the, you mentioned the cloud vendors with their account management vending machine. Um, you know, a lot of them now have cloud posture management as a as a built-in feature, but there's lots of third parties like uh, Palo Alto and some of the others who have a cloud security posture management uh, capability that can help you do guardrails as well. Um, so there's there's lots of interesting ways to kind of think about. You know, are you going to go bespoke and write your own thing, or use open source with some of like the uh, the Capital One type technologies they've open sourced in this particular space? Um, are you going to buy a vendor, or are you going to use a cloud native solution? And I think that kind of goes back to defining: are you multi cloud or single cloud, which will kind of help drive that decision. But um, there's lots of things that you want to probably be automating: all the policies, all the governance, how you attest to those things, how you validate group membership. That should all be really thought about from an automation perspective from day one. As part of your long-term design, even if you do it manually initially, you know how are you going to automate that? Uh, because it gets complicated when you have a hundred and some odd accounts. Uh, you've got multiple groups. You've got multiple people doing CI/CD. And the more automation you have here, the more uh, lack of you know missing something can happen. I was surprised that there weren't better tools earlier on. I mean, there's so many use cases where an account vendor and vending machines will be useful. Think about like Quick Labs and things where, you, where you're going to log in, do a task, 20 minutes later, you're going to tear it down again. The the fact that the, that wasn't sort of productized and it was just off the shelf for anybody who wanted to use it um, really kind of blew me away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, I remember asking for that for, for ages, right? Before Google bought, bought them, you know, it was like, can you, I just need this part. Like, you know, I'll take the training too, but what I really want is the account creation and tear it down part. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did a lot of, I think they had a lot of access to either private APIs from Amazon, you know, with their partnership with them, or they just, they engineered the crap out of it and just had massive amounts of cleanup scripting. They wrote around all these limitations of AWS, but uh, I suspect the latter actually. I mean, I, I do as well. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think Amazon gave them any special favors, especially when they got bought by Google. Um, what you interested mentioned tagging, and so tagging is kind of an interesting struggle for a lot of people because, especially if you've already established your cloud, uh, you probably didn't tag it, <laughs> and so that can cause you all kinds of issues. Uh, if you did create your center of excellence first, you hopefully talked about tagging as part of your security strategy, your access strategy, um, and your bill back uh, cost management strategy as well. I think the there is an opportunity around tagging. Um, you know, a lot of companies have server naming conventions, for example, and they have uh, special codexes that'll help you decipher what all the special letters mean and how those things. And and you can actually write automation if you built your servers that way and name the server. You can pull that data out of DNS and you can parse that into tags, uh, or you could even take it out of a server name if that's displayed in the console as part of your server setup process. So there are ways to get to tagging automation. Without having to do a lot of work up front, um, you know, even if you have just some basic conventions that maybe you pulled over from your on-premise data center, those can get you started into tagging, um, which can be really helpful. And it's a great starting place to say, well, yeah, all that complexity we had in naming, yeah, we just moved it into tags, and that's where we started. Yeah, now it doesn't have to be you know fully qualified, domain compliant, and it you know you you get a lot more power and being able to assign key value pairs. Um, for that value, and then having the ability to to have more than just the host name split on dot sort of methodology to to target automation. So it, it it's important to not only develop a tagging strategy as early as possible, but also 
you know, however you plan on doing it, retrofit your resources in the cloud to, to bring in, you know, and tag those older resources. Never assume that from day one, you'll have all your resources tagged because things like, you know, an acquisition or uh, a newly discovered experimental account that's in production, you know, like these things happen in businesses. And so you have to be able to adapt and, and, you know, sometimes it's going to be a lot of work and a matter of going through it, but it's a, it, it is a challenge, but it's super important and it's more powerful than people realize. One of the areas you want to think about automating as well um, is the billing data <laughs> and figuring out how to process that data. You know, we talked about the cur file earlier on the show. Uh, once you have multiple accounts, that cur file gets real big real quick. <laughs> and so, you know, being able to build automation to suck that data into Elasticsearch or into a BigQuery or into um, some other type of database that you can use and query regularly is going to be really helpful for you, especially as your CFO starts yelling at you about your costs um, <laughs> and making sure that you can really quickly try those costs back to business units, to products, to servers, uh, and you're being able to do showback. And so, you know, this is one of those areas where a lot of people will invest in tooling, uh, but, you know, you really don't need the tooling if you just have someone who can focus on building it yourself. It's not super complicated. It's really just taking, you know, things that are pretty well defined in the billing data and then extracting them to the right fields and then being able to do joins across those fields in the right way to do the visualizations you want. Pippa tables the win. <laughs> <laughs> Excel will not help you in this, though, because Excel yeah. will run out of fields very quickly. Yeah, <clears throat> when, when you have uh, 20 billion line items a month in the uh, in the curve file, that's a little beyond Excel. Yeah, mm-hmm. just a little <laughs> bit. E- even probably beyond Google Sheets. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> it's one of those things because one of the first questions you get in, in Center of Excellence is, uh, "Why did our bill go up by blah?" Right? Like, and and it can be very difficult, if especially if you put all this into to automation and you have very self service, you know, capabilities, and so you're allowing your cloud platform. If you haven't instrumented the visibility of those things, it can be challenging to go figure out why it's a hundred thousand dollars more expensive this month, or um, you know, and it's you know, it can take quite a detective sort of you know investigation going through logs and, and looking at statements and invoices and trying to find the difference. And, you know, it's you know, and, and none of the tools really provide that ability to sort of just automatically hone in it takes someone who is familiar with your workloads understands the you know the the way things are laid out and where things are in your in terms of like your products that are you're hosting to really understand that and be able to to provide that back to the business like oh yeah it was because this one team you know doubled their size of their Elasticsearch cluster yeah, but that's that's the easy ones to find, actually. So those are the, yeah, yeah, those are the ones that are in the CloudTrail log. You can find those. You know, like, oh, this mm-hmm. this person increased you know three x the nodes or or chose an x one instance type. Uh, the more difficult things are like when uh, the dev team deployed some new feature that's now you know sending data to some third party SaaS service on the internet, and now you're paying egress fees at you know multi petabytes per day. <laughs> Um, and those are not as easy to see in the CloudTrail log. So that's where the automation can come help you out again. Because you'd, you'd see in the automation, oh, my egress costs out this NAT gateway in this particular account just jumped 6x or 10x. And then you at least have an account to go to. Then you can start focusing in on potentially what changed. And with again, with flow logs and some of the other things we talked about in other episodes, you might be able to track this down pretty quickly. Um, but without, without that visibility, uh, answering that cloud question can get hard. <laughs> I mean, when we talked about what, what should have its own account and what shouldn't, I'm not sure we actually t- talked about um, cost management and cost visibility 
at that time. We talked about blast radius and all those other things, but I mean, since we do get per account and, and nothing more granular than that in, ter in terms of you know EC2 usage, networking usage, and things like that, it's it's ideal to um, to segregate services that you need to be individually um, billable or individually uh, reportable on on their costs. You can dimension cost by tag. Like that's why the tagging becomes super important. If you have everything in one account, you know, you're only going to see a line item for EC2, but then you can, you can using, you know, cost explorer tools or something like that, you can generate the reports to separate that out, but only if you have it tagged. Not for networking though. I mean, networking is networking, isn't it? For the, for the whole BPC. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Tagging, tagging doesn't go very deep. <laughs> yeah. Any kind of centralized egress, right? Like that's going to be tricky. You know, if it's, if you've routed everything through, you know, a routing layer to a centralized point, you're just going to see the overall thing spend. You're going to have to do a lot of analysis on, you know, that traffic, what's generating the traffic to, to do that. It's tricky. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's even worse than you think. Somebody may ask you, well, why is the bill gone up by $10,000 this month? And then when you start digging into it, you realize that actually somebody else has saved $20,000 and this other team's <laughs> increased cost by $30,000. <laughs> So sure, it's, you know, the, the granular visibility into, into costs um, is, is very important. Mm -hmm. yep. And then also knowing like, hey, that load test you just ran just jacked the bill up <laughs> dramatically. Yep. is good to know too. Yeah. Um, that's, another, that's another favorite of mine. I definitely like the, the, the horizontal markers by release date and uh, <laughs> you know, there are different elements of the software lifecycle because a lot of times it correlates. You can see as things progress through environments, costs go up per environment. Mm -hmm. Unless you're doing ephemeral dev, then hopefully it, you know, it's a it's more of a wave pattern. But mm -hmm. I really so rarely see that wave pattern in mm -hmm. companies I've been in. <laughs> uh, all right, well, it's, uh, are there any other areas you always want to talk about for automation? I mean, I think um, again, this is how you scale your CCOE to be successful, mm -hmm. and I think that's the key message we want to deliver here. Um, well, I think it's important for a CCOE to prove itself and and be able to demonstrate its value back to the business. And so one of the things that I think is important to capture through automation is is the the metrics of your adoption, right? Being able to figure out, you know, what what percentage of the business workloads are hosted on the cloud versus your, you know, or one cloud versus another or in your data center. Whatever your major, you know, motivation is for moving into the cloud, being able to instrument that and demonstrate that um, cause it'll, it serves as a, you know, a bellwether of, you know, like, are we off on a tangent? Like, you know, are, are you have a very static compute workload? Is this making sense? Right. Are we, have we increased value or are we, are we innovating faster, you know, with all these API driven infrastructure, you know, availability elements now, or is it just the same static compute workload that we had the data center? It's just costing twice as much. It's one of those things that I think is important to capture is, is being able to sort of demonstrate, like, you know, just are you on the right path or do you need to pivot? Yeah, no, I agree. I I was going to pivot over to metrics in general. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the the key thing is when you set up your cloud journey, you're figuring out what are the business drivers, why we're doing this. And, you know, again, if, if your number one reason is save money, um, I'd say abort. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you typically are you know, saying, look, we want to get innovation faster. We want to be able to deliver better uptime. We don't, we want to move away from spending large amounts of capital to refresh our data center. Whatever those reasons are, those are things that you should be tracking as part of your CCOE. 
And those are those are metrics that become important because those are the things you typically sell to the board when you need to go and make a you know ten million dollar multi year commitment to the business uh, to to Google or AWS or to Azure. Um, and then you know a year and a half later, everyone's like, "Why are we doing this thing again? Why is it so expensive?" Like, and then you need to be able to show those metrics and you need to be able to show that accountability um, that you're delivering on those value props that you promised the business. Because if you if you go down this journey and you you do all this moving, you didn't adopt anything cloud native, you didn't you didn't solve this thing, and you're just being more expensive, and you're not getting any of the other values out of the system, then the reason you're doing the cloud is wrong. And you need to really think that, as, again, as part of your CCOE and your vandalism, your executive touch points, these are the things that they need to be reminded of regularly because they will lose sight of this journey. They will forget why you're doing it. They will not understand in three years from now why you know, the data center spend went from you know, a million dollars in amortized cost a year to now you're spending three or four million dollars uh, on this capability. And, and, you know, they're like, well, it cost me only a million dollars back then. And you're like, yeah, but that was an amortized cost. So it was costing you three million dollars every time you refresh the hardware, for example. Uh, and we also didn't have these 10 other feet, these 10 new features that would have cost, you know, 10 million dollars in assets to buy. Uh, or something else, especially if you're talking about big data and AI and the, the amount of NVIDIA A100 CPUs and GPUs you'd have to buy and how much that would have cost you. These, those are things that you would not have been able to do in the data center for less than you know millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. Um, and so those are things you need to track as part of those, those dashboards and those adoption metrics is what would it have cost me if I kept doing this on-prem? What, you know, either in terms of time, in terms of dollar value, in, times of, in terms of capital, um, those are all really important things because again, you know, you can build Kubernetes on-prem, you can build Kafka, you can build, you know, NetApp storage filers, you can do all that stuff. Uh, it'll cost you in capital, cost you in time and resources and people. And if your move to cloud got you access to PubSub or to Kinesis, and you got access to, uh, you know, cloud storage through Object, and that was significantly cheaper than what you could buy NetApp from. Those are all cost savings that you've now delivered to the business. The business doesn't necessarily understand because those are all sunk costs for them in the past. I think the C7G example from earlier is is, is really relevant here because uh, you know, if, you've, if you just invest in something, you've got it for three to five years before you maybe even have room to upgrade, let alone have the cash to upgrade. We, you know, we make a change to a Terraform variable, all of a sudden we're deploying onto this new hardware that's just become available immediately. The, the, the value of, of, of not being tied to legacy technology is, is amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the reason why Honeycomb always comes up in um, a lot of the press releases around Graviton is because they adopt the new Graviton processors very quickly because they have designed an infrastructure that takes advantage of it. So when they talk about price per performance, and we talked about, hey, it's a few more cents more expensive for the, the Graviton 3 versus the Graviton 2. But you know, overall, they went from a fleet of 1,000 servers to a fleet of 800 servers. And I don't know if these are real. I'm just making this up at this point. Um, you know, that saved them 200 servers worth of compute capacity. That would have been a sunk cost in their data center. So again, like that's, that's slow auto-scaling, but it's still auto-scaling. All right. Uh, I think that I think that wraps it up. Unless you guys have something else about CCOE, we should talk about. But I, I think we that's a great series. I've really enjoyed hashing this out with you guys. <laughs> now we covered right at the top that it needs a better name, but other, you know, it's just my biggest complaint. But, yeah. Uh, Anytime I hear Center of Excellence, you kind of get that. Oh, McKinsey. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it does feel very smug. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, overall, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that I stumbled into, you know, originally, and I've developed some pretty, uh, 
strong, you know, uh, opinions about how it should be done. And, and it's a, I think it's a great thing that is being realized across the industry because it's, it's more than just sort of having your IT team manage your cloud environments. It's, it's a lot more partnership with the business. It's a lot more of a, you know, a sales and evangelism of technology and process and patterns. And it's, you know, it's, it's things that I find interesting and I do naturally. And so I'm glad to sort of see it be like sort of codified around me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I do want to pimp two TCP talks we just dropped. Um, so first of all, Christine Yen, who is the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb, uh, which is why it was, came to my mind <laughs> as we were talking about CCOE and, and metrics. Um, you know, we just did an interview with her. Peter interviewed her at reInvent. Uh, so this is just Peter doing the interview. So uh, this is his first time interviewing. So keep that in mind. Uh, but he did a great job, I think. I listened to it this morning and I was very pleased uh, with how he did. So congratulations, Peter. Uh, he can now replace me on the show. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then he also interviewed uh, Rahul Thakar, who's the director and general manager of simulation technologies at Amazon Services, uh, and who does a much better job explaining what AWS SimSpace Weaver simulations are uh, than we did. So Fantastic. if you really want to know what that is and how it works, uh, he is your guy to talk to. He has a, a length of experience. I was very impressed with his background. Uh, you know, 3D modeling, 3D movies, uh, all kinds of 3D stuff and how they use that to do simulations and modeling. So really great. Both those episodes are on your feed uh, or available on the website if you're curious. Uh, great. Both of them are really great episodes. So check those out uh, before we sign off tonight. Any other business, gentlemen? I don't think so. Awesome. Well, that's another fantastic week in the cloud. We'll see you all next week. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.